0: Hi everyone, thanks for joining this is Seeking Sustainability Live podcast. Dave Olson is now settled in Okayama where he is remodeling an old house into a comfortable home for his young family. And when I started doing research for this talk, it was another example of doing the research part of the preparation and finding out so many interesting layers of the guest's past and learning that he was a Hootsuite visionary, creating social media campaigns to really connect users in their own languages and especially at times of emergency. Now Dave has a very different lifestyle, but he's still very effective in storytelling and connecting people in different ways using his creative vision. I think Dave's story here is a great example for all of us that even when you might be sick or you have certain hurdles in your life, it's always possible to use your creativity, try to reach out to other people and share your vision for a common future and a better way forward. We start the episode here talking about the proximity of where I live, Hiroshima, and where Dave is in Okayama. Drive. It's not too far. I, I visit Okayama quite often.
1: Yeah, just might as well be on, on the moon with, with current uh, travel restrictions <laughs> in some ways. Yeah. But yeah, you make it up here. And, uh, in fact, I really enjoyed your episode that you did with uh, John Stuttlemeyer here in
0: the area. He's an amazing carpenter Remarkable. Remarkable. Using, using a lot of traditional Japanese techniques, which is a great segue to talk about you're doing a little bit of remodeling. Do you want to start with that?
1: Yeah, sure. So I came here to, I live in Tsuchita, just outside of Okayama City, and uh, married a, a wonderful woman two years ago, and came to live in basically her, uh, her ancestral home. So we, uh, the in-laws are right here uh, in the big house, and then we live in the cottage next door that we're cr- currently doing a renovation on. And when I, you know, when I came here, I thought, You know, I always wanted to have a big kominka and do the big project myself, but, you know, I realized that there was something really important about continuing and contributing to the story of this land where we live, that, you know, the big house here was built back in the Meiji period, and then um, grandma and grandpa lived here. Grandpa died, died many years ago, and grandma just last summer. But this was their home, but then it was empty for 20 some odd years. My wife came back and resettled the little cottage. My wife's an arborist and loves the outdoors and wanted to be part of country living. So she came back, uh, started moved back into the cottage, <laughs> which was in rough shape, and then convinced her parents to come out, and they did a big renovation here on the bigger house, keeping all the original beams and, and uh, traditional touches to it, but also, well. I can has-
0: see those gorgeous beams right behind you. Right. I love that you left them exposed. They're gorgeous.
1: Well, I think it's really interesting, too, because you can tell that while the house was built really deliberately and strong, it's not these elegant, polished, perfect um, artisan beams. They were like, all right, this, this tree will do. Let's, let's get it up there and get this because we got to get back to work. Behind our house used to be a soy sauce uh, factory. And also on the land are my two buildings that I adore. One is my wife's tool shed and it's filled with chainsaws and ladders and pickaxes and all these things. And then in the back, we have my kura barn. And when, um, when I moved here, i have been kind of on the road living out of backpacks and hotels and hospitals for the last bunch of years. And finally, I had a place where I could bring all my creative life archives from Canada and, and other places and put it all here in this kura. And kura, it's, you know, it's not really a barn. It's not really a granary. It's kind of a storehouse. 18 inch thick mud walls and big open beams. And it's probably the oldest house on the property here. And it's, it's, it's a real treat because it's kind of like a little bit of a sensory deprivation chamber. I can go in there and put on a record and play with my letters and postcards. But to your original question about the construction project. So the house was a little bit small. And last year we welcomed Ichiro Stanley Thorvald Olsen in the middle of the, all the everything, global health crisis TM. And we realized real quick, we need a little bit more space and this was gonna be a forever home. So let's put the work in to add to this house's story. The cottage itself isn't an architectural gem by any means. It's kind of a thrown together Showa era house. But we did a lot of things to uh, bring it up to date, make it cozy, quirky, and efficient. And including things from like a, a wood stove, a tea ceremony area, um, open up the kitchen, and putting in an oven, such luxury, and also doing some other practical things like putting in some insulation and big patio doors so we have airflow going through the whole house and it connects right into the Naya. So it really makes it into a uh, a, a comfortable place that we can live in for years. That's and
0: awesome, I, I, I
1: love, I, I love your- I tried to show that to you, but it's we got some- No, no, and the,
0: and the yeah, tile. we got-
1: Got lots of
0: rain today, right?
1: Yeah, it's really the tile saw too, which I just can't (laughs) can't really tolerate. I'm a bit delicate.
0: (laughs) No, no, no problem. I love your story about uh, the, I'm showing a picture now of your uh, in-laws house. Mm -hmm. And I love the story that you said you decided to remodel the the next house and the CUDA um, because your in-laws were so kind and said, you can just move into our house. And you're like, They're 70 years old and they're Japanese, so I don't want to wait 30 years.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they're both just retired and full of energy and go, go, go. I call them the teenagers because they're they're lovey lovey and they're always up to hobbies and activities. And I'm like, yeah, I need a house in three months, not thirty years. But but thanks, <laughs> you
0: know. That's awesome. Um, so this is kind of a, a big part, of course. This remodel, this new life in Okayama. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's move back a little bit. Talk about what you were doing in your career way back in the day, <laughs> and how you've kind of reinvented yourself. And then let's come back to your life now and your art and your postcards and all your projects right now is that okay
1: yes hold on I better sip some coffee for this
0: (laughs) so I found some pictures way back in the day you were doing Canadian hockey commentary is that right
1: right you know um, hockey in Canada is it's often compared to religion but it's really beyond that it's like religion crossed with a soap opera and um, and I was, ever since I was a little kid, I was, I enjoyed, you know, talking and covering um, hockey. First, in fact, my first publication, my first, first social media was a mimeograph, like the ditto machines, the ones that, that had the smelly ink on them. I was making little community newsletters with hockey news back in the, back in the 70s. And, but then in, in the mid 2000s, I started doing a, uh, a, a, a podcast about my, the Vancouver hockey team, the Canucks and podcasting at the time was like, I don't have an iPod, can I listen to that? It was kind of a new thing, but it was this regular folks um, uh, talking about hockey from a different perspective, but I wasn't constrained by the usual television and newspaper requirements, so I could kind of say what I wanted to say, which I did. And that quickly bubbled up where I was a frequent guest on CBC, Canada's national broadcaster, kind of doing like we're doing now, taking calls, going in the studio in the morning and I had a blast doing that. And so the what was quickly what was the renegade outlet quickly became um, covered as a story by the mainstream and then kind of co-opted by the erstwhile mainstream media where I regularly did the TV, radio and various newspaper hits and had a lot of fun doing that. Um, I, I joke now because now there's about 40 Canucks podcasts, but there's always only one original. And So I had a, I had a blast um, doing that now my, my relationship with hockey is much different. I listen to I listened to the games on the radio while drinking coffee here in the Japan time zone and and that's the extent of it now you know
0: Wow, that's awesome and then you you've been you were doing marketing for a very long time uh, with various organizations. you ended up being like a social media marketing guru at Hootsuite. <laughs> is that right?
1: I was the first um, marketing director and vice president of marketing and community at Hootsuite. Uh, at the time, we were a little company of nine, 10 people in a dingy office in the east, downtown east side of Vancouver. And we got to grow something from literally the ground up into a huge <clears throat> billion dollar, whatever, company. It was, a, it was an incredible experience, took a, a fantastic amount of energy, of course, But I was able to bring, you know, I've always sort of been a generalist, you know, doing lots of different things and having tons of different hobbies and skills rather than a specialist. And I was really able to show the benefits of having all these experiences as I got to bring them all to bear at Hootsuite, including my international experience and just traveling around and hitchhiking. Who knew that would be so handy? As well as, you know, things that get called marketing and branding and PR and uh, starting the help desks and incubating all the different departments until they were big enough to be their own department. Along the way doing that, I was able to uh, do a couple of keynote talks at South by Southwest and did a TEDx talk and did a lot of that kind of stuff and and fantastically enjoyed it. And the part that i the, the two parts that I really enjoyed the most is I had um, practicum students from all around the world over the course of you know, four years, I probably had 63 practicum students coming in from all kinds of different countries. And I would see these 19, 20 year olds come in. And I could imagine myself when I was 19, 20, uh, hitchhiking around in different countries, long before the internet was a consumer tool. And I was the, the person there to welcome them and help them get settled in this new adventure of their life. And so that, to me, was a real pleasure and privilege. And I keep in touch with so many of these folks now who are now onto their careers and families. The other thing I really enjoyed was um, I realized early on to differentiate ourselves from the competitors, which at the time there was a, a whole bunch of, you know, Twitter was a brand new thing. It just moved from an SMS tool to sort of Twitter. Well, not Twitter like we know now, but something else. And there was all the tools like TweetDeck and Seismic and uh, co-tweet and all these other ones. And I realized that we had a huge competitive advantage if we could go international quickly. And we did. And I ran an internationalization and translation project where we uh, we Tom Sawyer, we crowdsourced people helping us out with translations and launched 14 different languages in two years, which was ridiculous. We had a dozen languages out before Twitter.com had one other language out and also added different apps from each country. You know, Russia had uh, VK, that was their popular social network at the time before before the behemoths took over everything. At the time, Mixi was a big deal in Japan. Hives was a big deal in Netherlands. Orkut was a big deal in Brazil. So we added all these languages as well as apps and made the tool really localized for all these different countries. And that was a really uh, incredible experience, especially when we bumped into Arab Spring, um, where we had the app translated into Arabic. And because Hootsuite had a side door into Twitter, when twitter.com was blocked in, when everything was going on, and I don't want to make too fine a to point out like we weren't there on the ground with the people, but when we started seeing tweets, of people saying we're now using flags for bandages and it was sending out through our, uh, our software, it, we realized that we weren't just a bunch of goofballs in a dingy office in Vancouver, we were doing something really important. Same thing happened, we were at South by Southwest preparing to do a talk called Big in Japan about how we expanded into Japan when the 311 disaster hit. And we were presented with an opportunity to either cancel the talk or turn it into a fundraiser. We chose the latter and ended up raising hundreds of thousands of dollars for relief efforts for the tri- triple disaster. As the triple disasters were unfolding literally on the TV in front of us. So. A couple of really powerful experiences um, happen along the way. You know, we went from ten people by the time I left was creeping up to a thousand employees and six, eight different offices around the world.
0: Wow, amazing! And it it sounds like you did you did a lot of um, social media seminars, like you said. Uh, yeah. I love the comments from some of the people that attended uh, this. This tweet from someone who was in the seminar said, "The people on the fringe are the first, are the ones who strengthen your organization, build a posse. Having just the cool kids is not a strategy." I love all these insights from your seminar.
1: Well, I, I, first, I'm I'm really glad you dug into those things. You know, a lot of those things were happening so fast when I was doing them, and I was sort of salting them away in a digital uh, shoebox, so to speak. And over the last couple of years, as I've been picking up the pieces of my life, um, there's a few missing years in there, obviously. Um, I've, I've been pulling those things out and putting them back out into the world. And I, I realized that what I was saying were universal truths. They were meant to be evergreen. They were meant to last for years. It wasn't you know hopping on whatever the latest trend is. It was really authentic community building, one hug at a time, one connection at a time and being inclusive and anyone who shows up and raises their hand and says, I want to participate, you got to find a way to welcome them in and make them feel part of something bigger than themselves. So as I've gone along, I've pulled out a lot of these old audio files and put them up on a channel on my website and also taken a step further and, and, um, and had a lot of my, my interviews and seminars and whatnot transcribed. So if folks want to enjoy it uh, that way, so I slowly sort of putz along instead of you know playing video games, I, 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 play with, I play archiving and put all these things out there as a little bit of um, figuring out what it is that I contributed to the world, but also understanding that these things were important for the cultural heritage of what now became the contemporary internet experience. The internet I've learned has a really short memory and, you know, sometimes people, especially like, oh, don't put anything on social media because then it'll come back to haunt you. No, no, the internet forgets most everything. Yahoo buys a company and destroys it. Things get swallowed up. Domains expire. Companies pivot and you lose content. So I take the view that it's important to own your own content, publish it yourself, and archive it properly. And also get familiar with tools like the internet archive and make sure that the things that you've taken the time to create are properly are properly archived for the future because there's there's JJ Walshs that will come along in 20 years that will love seeing what you did and say oh my goodness this is just what I want to what I want to do
0: Yeah. Awesome. Um, I see so many from from the comments about community engagement, building connections between people, how you focus on the audience as individuals. And you are applying a lot of this for your postcard project, which we're going to talk about in a little bit as well. Um, and one of the attendees was saying, every time I see Dave talk, I get so pumped up about the power of social media to build community. Thank you, Dave. So it's, it's different from the, the normal things that you hear about creating a massive audience and stuff. And I, have you been able to retain this kind of sense of community in social media as you developed your career, you think?
1: Well, <laughs> um, you know, sometimes when life changes drastically, there's people that fall off the boat for sure. But to the bigger question in that about, um, you know, people who want to come along and be part of your community. If you put out the call and said, we're doing this, we need your help. And then people show up to help or be part of it. And you're like, yeah, yeah, whatever. I'm on to the next thing you've really wasted all that effort. So I'm constantly amazed when brands or, you know, influencers, you know, they spend this energy to get people into their world and into their uh, content sphere. People participate, hey, I, and they ask a question, they, they give some feedback, they interact, they tell what they're doing and are routinely ignored. And so I wonder what, why the, why are they trying to build this up in the first place, the answer is personal pride and collaborations and sponsor dollars and nonsense like that, because that's ephemeral. If you really love money that much, print it out on your laser printer or something. There's, a, there's always a way to make money, but community really requires heart and intention and authenticity, which is a word that gets thrown around. Community and authenticity have sort of been watered down as terms, but and I don't mean this as a plug at all, but in my archiving project, I put together a talk I did at South by Southwest called Crowdsourcing Community Projects Like Tom Sawyer. And I put it together from crowdsourced materials, from all these tweets and photos and whatnot that people took of the talk and put that together into a video. There's costume changes, there's a pipe, there's smoking jackets. I'm just gonna say that as a plug. But it talks about three big crowdsourcing projects, um, one around the Vancouver Olympics, one about phones for fearless, which was providing mobile phones to folks in a disinve- disenfranchised area of Vancouver, and then the Hootsuite translation project, which I mentioned earlier. But really looking at the different motivations that people have for joining a community, and um, and how to support them and how to really nurture that. As to how I've transitioned that into modern life, well, our cont- my contemporary experience is, you know, there was a period after Hootsuite where I ran into some significant health challenges and you know, the wheels fell off for lack of a better term. And I went, I, I went far and I went to a lot of different countries seeking healing and a new home. And along the way, I met a lot of people who um, were completely indifferent or, you know, not like it was a completely different world than um, rubbing elbows with well-named dot com superstars soon to be billionaires and influencers or whatever. These people were just out there living their lives doing things that I found were fantastically interesting. So I've, I, I invited them into my community, so to speak, by sending them postcards and being interested in their life and amplifying their stories and just becoming their accidental PR agent for their general awesomeness. They didn't have anything to sell, per se. Sometimes maybe they had they were making music or, or art or something. But I just, as I followed along my path, I, 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 the people I met, I took the time to respect them and learn their stories and find a way that I could contribute to their lives. And that kind of became community uh, in itself.
0: Awesome. Uh, I'm showing your homepage screenshot right now. So if people want to see all of these amazing archives and what Dave is up to now and your whole career, all the videos, everything is laid out in this amazing website, you've done a lot of work. Um, (laughs) It's a great, great place to send people. (laughs)
1: When I look at it, I go like, how did I pull that off? But, uh, um, you know, I used to have stuff spread over all sorts of different websites, and a friend named Dwayne, who now lives in Spain, which is always fun to say, he gave me a hand and brought a, a dozen two dozen different sites all into one giant um, WordPress CMS. And then in instead of watching TV, I put things in I organized things, put things in, into categories and have built this out. And you know I just you know tools like face space or whatever they'll eventually fade away, you know, like AOL did or whatever. And you don't own your content, and your content isn't searchable and semantically organized in those situations. And I always had such a hard time finding my own stuff because it was buried on different hard drives. For a long time, I was traveling without a computer and just analog devices and whatnot. And so so a lot of the reasons I made this archive was for my own personal so I could find the things uh, that, I, uh, that I created so I could say, hey, you know what you really need is, uh, and it's not a plug, but what you really need is, uh, so, so I, have a, I have a lot of fun um, making it, but I also have to really be careful with my screen time, with my illness, my eyes fatigue really easy. Um, so it's, it's, it's all about finding that balance, but thank you for taking the time to poke around. Really oh it's
0: it's awesome. I recommend it to anybody interested. You've got such a varied and interesting background. Um how did your interest in postcards and the postboxes how did that start because that's such a main theme of what you're doing now? Um well
1: there's two parts of it. One, you know, as I've been going through my archives, you know, I had a whole shipping container of my whole life archive show up last year that I moved into the Kura, the Kura barn. And I realized ever since I was a little kid, I was making these newsletters and writing postcards with my terrible handwriting and combine that with when I was doing this, wandering for, you know, at hospitals and clinics and finding a new home, I, I, I really just needed to stay offline. And so, and I have with my health challenge, I, I, I can't be really out doing chasing around and doing 12 things a day. And so instead I would go to find a great coffee shop, uh, write postcards and then go on a quest. My quest in every place was to go find the post office and then start documenting the post offices by um, taking pictures or making a painting right there on site. Um, taking the photos, and then you know, while I was there in the hospital, I would start making paintings of the post boxes, and then made the paintings of the post boxes. Here's an example: paintings of post boxes into postcards, and then mail those postcards. And so it becomes like this recursive story of um, of an of an art piece. Rather than an art piece that's static and just lives somewhere, it becomes a sort of a living, breathing thing in a sense that. Um, you know, little pieces of my heart get handled by so many hands, going around, going through this magical system of the postal uh, network, and end up with someone else, and ends up on their fridge. And I joke that I'm I'm famous on refrigerators all over the world, and I have the evidence because then people send me the picture of the postcard, of the painting, of the post boxes that's on their fridge, and then I put those back onto the blog, uh, so it becomes this recursive story. Um, and I have a, so I have a, a, a lot of fun with that. And I think, you know, now communication so much is, you know, ephemeral in nature. You post something on Twitter, or Facebook or whatever. And it's, you know, it's kind of vanished after a day. Or else when you check your postal box, it's a bill or junk mail or, you know, in Vancouver, it's advertising from real estate agents. Um, so getting a, a, a thing that, someone has put intention into and made. And, you know, I love to put on fake stamps on it. You know, I get stamps from other countries just to confuse the situation. Put thumb prints on it and fountain pens and, and, you know, making my own art on the postcards. And I really think that these are something that people can hold on to generationally, or, you know, I hope they don't just use it for Tinder, but if they want to, you know, light your wood stove with it, (laughs) you know, as well. But I think that there's something important about slowing your pace down and writing something that's going to last uh, for decades rather than minutes.
0: Definitely. And I I love this idea of reaching out to people and communicating, especially now during coronavirus. And we all need to feel more connected. I think it's so easy to feel isolated, right? And. I love some of the materials you're using on the postcards as well. You talked about using Japanese traditional washi paper, you used uh, some paper from Sri Lanka, which is made from animal dung. Yeah. Which is is, I love paper
1: it. here with the little wrapper. And then you have like the Japanese uh, washi masking tape here. And then I got the ink stamps. I love putting private and confidential stamps on postcards, because obviously it's completely not confidential or private in any way. And then I have a variety of of hunkos. I am, uh, I I blocked my own view here, but you can see my little Dave hunko there. And I have a whole variety. Whenever I see one of the 500 yen hunko making machines, I have to make something. So I have have baskets of stamps and and other little ways to decorate uh, decorate these. And then I have the little captions about where they're from. And in this case, and I, I love buying all the different kinds of paper in this case, it's watercolor paper doing a series of, like, the post boxes that I just mentioned. So we have one here from the Vatican. You know, I went to the Vatican. I didn't see the Sistine Chapel, but I sure saw the post office. And there's a cat there, too, watching us. And then this is in Olympia, Greece. I did see the Olympic ruins for a minute, but mostly hung out at a cafe with some old men drinking ouzo and playing backgammon. And made a picture of the post box while drinking an espresso. Kathmandu, Nepal. Sure, there's the Himalayas, but have you seen the post boxes? And this is Muscat um, Oman. And, you know, there's a Portuguese fort up here on the hill. I rolled in with, I got a whole set of Arab robes and I rolled in there and um, hung out. Well, it was a Sunday, so I couldn't actually go into this post office, but I sure did visit and made a painting of it. And so I amused myself doing this kind of stuff. But also by spreading them out into the world, it, it gives me a little, it gives me a chance to share my story in a in a non usual way, and makes me feel a little bit like Tintin.
0: Do you have a little white snowy dog to follow you around?
1: <laughs> Dogs are hard uh, with my with <laughs> with hopping on trains and planes and and ships, but uh, but my little son he does he just came naturally with a little Tintin tin curl. Yeah. So, when oh, yeah,
0: you've, you've got a new little baby boy. How old is he?
1: Uh, he's one years old next week. Yeah, he was born right in, as things were getting really, really serious here in Japan last year. So it was a real challenge around the time he was born. But from the second he arrived, I said, we got this, whatever it takes. And so he's just started nursery school because, you know, you know, 10 months old. Come on, get a job, kid. And so he's in nursery school in the neighborhood here. And he's a he's a one- Wonderful. My very favorite part of being his papa is uh, bath time every night here in Japan. It's the tradition for papa to have bath time. It's not stick the kid in the bath and let him play with toys. Bath time is serious. It's when I tell him his family history, talk to him and tell him all the adventures we're going to have in our life.
0: Nice. I love it. So your your pace of life is definitely a lot slower than it was over the years, being a big corporate social media marketing guy. Um, Where did the painting and the art and the poetry come from? Have you done that over the years?
1: Yeah, I've kind of always done that. Um, You know, you get sidetracked and distracted. Certainly with doing the fast paced corporate game, it was harder to do that. But all along the way, I was always finding some creative outlet You know, a lot of times I was making podcasts like when I would go to London on a business trip um, and have a hard time sleeping, I would wander around, you know, London at two in the morning. Well, here we are at Shakespeare's Globe. Well, it's three in the morning, we're on London Bridge and it's raining. I better get, you know, and so I made a whole series of these kinds of things. I've always making journals and diaries and notebooks and scrapbooks. I've always loved paper ephemera kind of stuff, ticket stubs and brochures and things that you can just slip into a book so um and maybe i could share these another another time with you but i have a whole shelf full of scrapbooks um of ephemera from all the different trips that i've done over the years and instead of buying souvenirs or things that you know expensive objects i have all the paper things and i mix them together with narratives snippets of poetry and whatnot i've always made little chat books. I worked at a Kinkos for three months just so I could use the machines after hours to print out little, you know, chat books and scrapbooks and catalogs and I've I've always loved scissors and glue. So it kind of came full circle when my life slowed down. Um, you know, which in a strange way with the current public health conundrums and restrictions and whatnot, it's allowed me to sort of share my Way of being with a lot of folks who have struggled with being at home because I've had to get used to it the last bunch of years, um, and how you can keep yourself occupied but also mentally sharp and be contributing to the human conversation rather than just spacing out and what watching, uh, you know, Pablum on television. So you know the writing, the writing and uh, the painting and the and the poetry and every kind of art and craft it's always part of just what I call story making. You know, it's story making is a little bit of a, a vague term intentionally because it's not about the medium, uh, and it's not just about the message. To 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 remix Marshall McLuhan, it's about both of these all the time in whatever way suits what it is that you have to uh, share, have a desire to share, but also what fits, what you want, what you want to sh- share, and what your what what your heart tells you. As grand as that sounds. You know, if you have a notion of paint, well, you know, go spend 20 bucks, get some stuff and paint and see what comes out. Uh, it doesn't have to be, there's no judgment or, or dialogue that has to go along with it. Float your things out into the world, you know, contribute to the, the conversation. So it takes a little bit of uh, bravery to do this at first, but it's something that I've practiced my whole life. And now with having to slow down, it's in a roundabout way. It's given me an opportunity, one, without this weird illness, I wouldn't have met uh, dear Ryoko and Ichiro wouldn't ob- obviously wouldn't be here, but also it's given me an opportunity to really dig into the archive and gather all these things and contextualize them, make them into something and float them out into the world, whether it's through websites, through postcards, through video dispatches or whatever.
0: Yeah, it's awesome. Uh, I saw that you also have a series of art. It's like scrapbooking, like collages, using hotel stationery. Yeah, I love yes. that idea. <laughs>
1: yeah, <laughs> I'm so glad you do. When I uh, when I travel around, you know, uh, I love finding the. I'm just trying to see if I have some examples here in the in the suitcase. Um, I love finding the quirky old faded glory hotels, you know, the old Grand Budapest's of the world, and uh, and finding the ones with the, the the letterhead. And so I had all these snippets of poetry that I'd written through India and Nepal and whatever. And then I, I got on a ship that was going through the Suez Canal, and I took the time to transcribe all my scribbled diaries. And then another stop along the way, there was a printer at a hotel. I printed all this stuff out thinking that, well, I'd edit it and make it into something but I cut it all up and then I realized I also had a stash of of hotel stationery and then I found a store when I ended up in Montreal that had all this vintage hotel stationery so I mixed all those together cut and paste and glued it all together and then added stamps both inky stamps and posted stamps and so I wanted to just kind of um, remove all that pretension and grandiosity um that sometimes surrounds poetry. Poetry can sometimes be a big intimidating word. and there's a lot of uh, capital P poets out there that spend half their time applying for grants and uh, publishers and getting a book out that 300 people see. And well, you know, I went back to this kind of punk rock DIY philosophy when we'd, you know, having bands and stuff, we'd make our own flyers and put them up on, street poles or grocery store bulletin boards next to the lost cat posters uh, or just like leave them on buses or whatever. So I did the same thing with these, these um, I call them um, items forgotten. So I imagine the kind of the backstory of them is, you know, sometimes you find that random piece of paper that's left over somewhere and uh, it's kind of hard to see. Here's some little postcard sized versions of them. So they're, they're kind of ridiculous, because this white paper with aerial font, clearly from just some cheap and cheerful inkjet printer, but put on hotel stationery from some hotel that doesn't exist anymore, then mixed in with like, there's my grade four science fair first place ribbon. You just mix that in there. Sure, it totally makes sense, right? Um, you know, we got the Empire Motor Hotel and the H&M Hotel here from Warsaw. And again, putting on the inky stamps and the postage stamps. So That's I put awesome. out a series of bees, and again mail these around the world. Put them can up. Can you can
0: you read us some of the poetry from the page? I can't. I can zoom in close okay. enough.
1: Um, I'm, I'm actually having a hard time with my eyes right now. So okay. So I'll save that for. Um, we'll save that for another time. I just can't quite focus enough right now.
0: Okay. No problem.
1: Um. But yeah, there's there, there's a missed opportunity. But um, and can I show you a couple other little postcards here since I have them here in the... Of I-
0: course.
1: This is, uh, when I was in India, I was staying in an Ayurveda hospital. And, you know, life was really tough for me at that point in time. And I needed a creative outlet. And India is fantastically colorful. Where I was in Kerala, you know, the houses are sherbet colored and all just uh, bright and cheerful. And I had this Lomo sor- sardine can spy camera with expired black and white film. So I went out and took pictures like the Chinese fishing nets and the boats at the, in the harbor and the old fish um, from this old expired film and they're all fuzzy and grainy and wonderful. And, and again, it looked like these weird spy photos to me. And I loved mixing those and contrasting those with um, some other ones I did from India that are oil pastels. I can find them here, I really should have organized, but um, here we go, but later, um, so I did the black and white series and later I did, I went to the train station, an empty train station made of painting with oil pastels. Outside of the hospital, things were all bright and and unbelievably colorful, so it's kind of, uh, these things are really important to me because this kind of shows the beginning of my journey there at the Ayurveda hospital and then afterwards where I started seeing things in color again. And these were all just done with little notebooks and dollar store art supplies along the way. This, the Lomo camera is literally made like the size of a sardine can. And I felt like, uh, you know, it's easy to go out in the world with your, everyone's got a pocket robot camera phone and you can take a thousand pictures, but it's really what you do with them and how you contextualize those into a story. That uh, that makes them something special, like a, you know, like I have with my little India bicycle with the urg- urgent stamp, because it's very very important because it says so right there, urgent.
0: I love it. I love the use of all the Japanese stamps. You've got a Hachiko dog stamp, which I <laughs> yeah. love.
1: <laughs> yeah, and we made a little card for welcome Ichiro into the world.
0: Very Aww.
1: And we have our little, this is a hand card stamp that my wife did for our our wedding, it's a maple leaf, which we use kind of for a symbol because to kind of connect Canada and Japan, and she's an arborist. And this was actually a stamp that was pushed into Bizanyaki ceramic sake cups, which went in the gift bag. And then we actually said, you know, we could actually use those as a stamp stamp as well. And then the little note card here, and then every card that we sent out had a different set of stamps on it and was all a little bit customized. Um, and then you know, I decorate the backs of them. And here's a picture from my 50th birthday inside the Kura. So it's always like, how do you make a story out of your re- regular everyday life? And how do you share that story in a way that other people will enjoy and possibly get a bit of inspiration out of?
0: And if anybody's interested as well from the homepage, I would also recommend uh, Dave's YouTube channel where you do introduce a lot of your more recent artwork postcards and all of the things that we're talking about here, as well as your buy me a coffee page. Can you tell us about your buy me a coffee page? You got some great stuff there.
1: Yeah. Well, I send out like, you know, when I say I send postcards, I mean, there's, there's, there's hundreds that go out a year from different post offices around the world. And, uh, uh, but I I realized I'm spending a a colossal amount of money on ink and stamps, which I enjoy. You know, it's like, there's a lot of things to save money on in your life. You know, I don't, you know, car payments and fancy watches and TVs, you know, skip all that stuff, but spend your money on art supplies and stamps. Uh, But I hate spending money on printer ink. So I started to buy me a coffee just to pay for some printer ink. Cause you know, I'm a dad now. I gotta be responsible, right? So I sent out my little sets of postcards um, from buy me a coffee, you can choose the different sets or else what's become the really popular thing is uh, the $5 a month. And then I send you a postcard every month, like a handwritten handmade postcard. Now the business people out there are going, Dave, you're not making any money on that. And you you know what, you're right, but I, I really enjoy it. And it's a way to invite people into the community again uh, but I send, uh, you know, it's the postcards as a service, P-A-A-S, which is remixing software as a service, my little postcard sets, or else my uh, art dossiers, which I fill up a big envelope with kind of odds and ends of everything that I'm working on. And again, uh, I lose money on everyone, but I have a blast going to the post office. The little local post office here in my neighborhood, Shino Goze Post Office, they, uh, they've they gotten well used to me now, coming in with a big... St- Stack of things going all over the world, and uh, they've learned that I don't really care about spending over on the stamps because sometimes the international stamps are the right weight, it's not the cute stamps. I'm like, no, 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 we need the cute stamps, we need the best stamps. And if I spend an extra 20 yen on it, well, whatever. And so, I have a, I have a good time there, you know. Really, I, I take Ichiro to uh, uh, nursery school. I go to the post office and sometimes go to my buddy's goat farm. It's been my universe for the last uh, year and a half. And, and you know, and I'm, I'm, I'm all right with that. You know, and when you send things out in the mail, uh, the craziest things happen. You get things back in the mail coming the other way. So the local postal delivery folks um, are well acquainted with this eccentric foreigner now living in their midst.
0: That's awesome. And aren't Japanese stamps wonderful, like how they change every season? They have such a variety of like illustration versions, uh, real pictures of rural Japan, traditional Japan. Uh, different kinds of sports or you know performances. I love it. I always buy the the interesting ones. And same as you, they always say you know or oh, international. Just print out this generic one. And I'm always like no 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 no. no, <laughs> no. I want the pretty one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and my, I, I, I collect collections
1: and I have to be very careful because I start buying stamps and go, oh, no, I can't use these. But whenever I start to tell m- that to myself, I, I, I immediately um, realize that I, that's the one I need to use and send it out to the people so they can enjoy that little slice of Japanese culture. A lot of times I will um, recently they have these really cute ones. They're just a one yen stamp, but it has a little uh, teddy bear with a postal worker outfit on. It's like a little postal kuma Ka- kuma chan and i buy sheets of those just to, to seal the envelopes as like a little envelope sealer cuz they're so cute and and then i take them to the post office and they're like well this you know this is already 1 yen on here we can't my sign like no 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 that's just decoration it's all right let's decor- let's make these envelopes awesome so now they have a fun time with it um, they have a fun time with it as well um, one note you mentioned my youtube channel um, you know, a lot of what's on there is there's a lot of my old lectures and then I, I make these ambient train videos. Um, when I'm riding trains in different places, I'll just put a camera on the, on the window and I find them, that train noise really relaxing for when I'm writing, for having something in the background. That feeling of being on a train is really satisfying to me. But when the current health situation started, I, I started doing my Japan cottage musings to kind of tell people some tips and tactics of how they can keep themselves amused and occupied and productive during these, these times. And you know, I figure being a Gen Xer with a disability and a lot of hobbies, I'm, I'm, custom, I'm made for this moment. Uh, so hope, and I think you know, some folks have found some inspiration um, and certainly I've received a lot of letters from people who kind of got sparked into letter writing or scrapbooking or going through their own, what I call personal archaeology, meaning going through your own stuff that you've collected over the years and making it into something. In fact, leading up to my 50th birthday last year, I know, 50, right? Um, I suddenly had all, all my old stuff. And a lot of this stuff, in most cases, gets lost over the years. But in my case, I moved so much. You know, I've lived in, I don't I don't even know how to count them anymore. So many houses. So stuff was always just going into different storage lockers um, in different places. Uh, And finally I kind of gathered up all these things and both my parents died um, in rather short order. So I ended up with things from them. And I realized I had photos from every year of my life that I could specifically date from different passports and visas and ID cards and class pictures. And so I kind of did a little project where I said, can I find a picture from every year that has a definitive date on it to document? Not obsessive at all, not weird at all. But I had all these passports, all these glasses, which I think you would enjoy, JJ, because you have a fine assortment of spectacles. Uh, And I found all these old glasses. Well, I better make a photo essay out of those. I found all my elementary school report cards, which I just found so elegant that the teachers were still writing and hand typing the comments. So, you know, this. It's a great way to put on a record, go out to my barn, put on a record and kill a couple hours sorting through these things and savoring this moment and understanding the journey of how you got to be who you are today, because all those little things. And, you know, I said earlier, I found that I'm pretty much the same guy I was when I was seven years old, making little newsletters and sending postcards and wanting to be Tintin. I just ended up being Captain Haddock or Professor Calculus or something (laughs) in the (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> instead <death>. blister <laughs> barnacles
0: i love it i love it because how many times you know you'll take a a trip to somewhere and you'll have a really interesting ticket stub from going in a museum or going up you know on a carousel or something and you want to remember that um scrapbooking's a great idea but scrapbooking plus poetry plus in a postcard I love that concept of you sending a postcard to someone, then putting it on their fridge, taking a photo of it, sending it back to you. You've got this connectivity over the miles, and from your creativity, inspiring and connecting to others. It's so magical. I love it.
1: Right, and you know, one note about the scrapbooks. Um, if you, you know, there's a lot of, there, it turns out there's professional scrapbookers out in the, there in the world, and you, you don't have to go for the Instagram to see people who are making these convoluted, epic things, but I, I most of the things that they're making they are just, you know, stock paper and odd things that they find, and great, if you enjoy that, do it. But all of us have those ticket stubs from the carousel and the gondola and that concert, and, you know, here in Japan, with the wonderful 100 yen stores, even getting those notebooks, a glue stick and some double-sided tape and a pen, you're up to about 4 or $5 you've spent, and that's all you need. Go to town. Scissors and glue, everywhere I go, I always have a little case like this. I have a whole stack of old suitcases I cover up with stickers and fill with art supplies. Scissors, glue, double-sided tape, a few stamps, and whatever you have. And put on a record, and whatever happens with it, happens with it. Sometimes we get precious with these artifacts, and yeah, they're, they're precious memories, but if they're living in a shoebox and nowhere ever sees them, there's no audience breathing life back into those things. And, you know, and and now with the phones, oh yeah, yeah, I went here, I want to show you this picture, scroll, 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 scroll. here's a great picture on a three inch screen for you to look at, yeah, you can, like there's no context or no story or no way for people to dive into that and enjoy it and savor it and look at the nuance, where this little humble postcard printed here on a, you know, on a, your regular old, printer that ends up on someone's fridge. They can look at that every day and they can notice a little bit different part of that. Oh, there's a little flyer there on the wall. Um, And then later they connect with another piece of my story and go, you know what? He's talking about India and that. I think this is the same place that he did that. Let me go down this rabbit hole. And then that inspires them to say, you know what? I've gone to this place and I have these old slides that I made. Why don't I get a slide scanner and spend an afternoon doing that instead of watching you know, sequel six of some movie series.
0: Uh, just an idea. Uh, it's not. For, it's not. No, forever. no, it's awesome, and it's it's such a. I think we've lost this way to communicate in this tactile way. Mm-hmm. Who who is sending postcards anymore? Who is writing letters anymore? But if you get, like you said, if you get a postcard or a letter in the mail, not just a bill or some you know spam flyer, it, it's so meaningful and you connect to it on a different level. I love it.
1: I think so. And, you know, I'll, I'll tell you one character out there in the world that's been a big inspiration to me. I was doing this before I knew about him or, or had a chance to meet him, but there's a guy called Nick Bantock who wrote a series of books called Griffin and Sabine that some folks may be familiar with. But the whole book is a fictional correspondence between two people that's all written as postcards. But uh, Mr. Bantock made the postcards, made the art on the postcards, made the stamps, had the stamps printed, put the stamps on the postcard, made all of those into the book. The book has envelopes and whatnot in, in it. And I'd done a, a, a fictional project called Letters from Russia. That was kind of a, I don't know, it was like Tolstoy's War and Peace fan fiction. It was all written as letters from the point of view of a French cobbler with Napoleon's army, had letters and drawings and bound it all up in a book. And it was a neat little project. And people said, oh, it reminds me of Nick Bantock's Griffin and Sabine. I tracked this down and said, I got to meet this dude. But how do you meet a guy who sells millions of books? Well, what does he love? He loves stamps and weird stuff from other countries. So I loaded him up a big envelope of stuff from Sri Lanka or India or wherever I was and um, made arrangements to meet up with him to add to his collection of ephemera. And he's been a huge uh, influence. He's a classically trained fine artist, which I am not. But we all have our different way of approaching all of this. You know, the thing that I have going in my benefit that that uh, that he doesn't is I've gone, I've I've taken the chance and bought one-way tickets to a lot of weird countries, you know, all through Micronesia and and Arab world and Indian subcontinent and and just gone with no plans. And a lot of it was pre-internet days, which I don't know how we, <laughs> I'm not quite sure how we did it. But I so I have this great collection of of interesting artifacts from all around the world. But there's other people who have really inspired me, like uh, like Nick Bantock, who wrote Griffin and Sabine.
0: Awesome. Um is there anything we haven't oh about your house. We've got nine minutes left. Can you tell us a little bit about your remodel? Sure. Project? So
1: the cottage, like I said, was a kind of a little thrown-together uh, house built in show appears in the early 80s. And my in-laws here, my dear in-laws, lived in this where, uh, when, my, when my wife was born. And they soon thereafter moved to the city, lived in a mansion apartment in Okayama City, and this little house was mostly empty. Grandma still lived here in the big house, but she had some uh, health challenges. Grandpa had died. Uh, Grandpa Ichiro, who, was, um, who we kept his memory alive through our son Ichiro's uh, name, um, so she was. The house was falling into dis- disrepair. Uh, Grandpa Ichiro had been a farmer. Grandma wasn't able to carry that on. So everything was kind of a mess. So when Dioko, my wife, moved back into the cottage, um, she started to put it back together. But we realized real quick that well, it, one, it wasn't well constructed. It doesn't have the beautiful old bones like the Kura or this house does. It's just kind of slapped together. But it does have some fun, quirky touches to it. And goodness knows we love quirky. So. Rather than trying to tackle a big new project, because really I do have limitations to what I can do, and my wife works full time as an arborist. She's out there getting grubby. You know, She drives her own K truck and comes home. You know, She has a shelf of hard hats. How cool is that? So what we did is we've added a big new room, so we'll have a proper Gen Con. And we did a couple of really nice touches, like taking the old sliding doors from this house before remodel, and using them on the cottage, so they're kind of Taisho era doors. Um, same with some some windows. So we put in a lot of old kind of Taisho decorative touches. We both love that era because it's kind of West meets East and the Jazz Age, and when Japan really opened up and was having a good time for a while. Some great literature came from that time before things kind of went to the to the dark in Japan with the imperialistic uh, times. So. Um, a big new room, genkan, herringbone, uh, raw uh, tile, a little station for Ichiro's school stuff. You come into the house and there's big patio doors that go right into the carport and the naya. And with the southern breezes that come through our area, because like Hiroshima or weather here is pretty similar, I suspect, where it gets very hot hot and humid. Um, So in order to be a little bit more efficient with the heating and cooling of the house we have big patio doors there that will allow a cross draft through the whole length of the house the house itself now is very long and thin where it feels like uh, a a sleeper compartment in a train which I, I love so we've called it suchita cottage we're starting to call it suchita station now to, to kind of reflect that train feeling of it plus with the big patio doors we'll be able to watch Ichiro and on his buddies playing outside um, you know, because I have a hard time getting out and about in the neighborhood, I really want to turn our place here into, like, where all the kids hang out, you know. And with the carport right there, you know, I figure in a few years, I'll be setting up an outdoor movie theater in there, making popcorn for the kids. If the kids all want to come over and I'll make them, you know, apple and peanut butter snacks, being the quirky uh, foreign dad here, uh, I'll love all of that. And then um, front room will also have the piano. And we have all kinds of musical instruments scattered around the house because Ichiro will have a band whether he wants to or not. And so I, I gotta I gotta be the guy who makes the flyers and hangs out at the merch table. Plus our desks we have, as you may may not be surprised, we have many desks. And then the kitchen was stuck in the back corner of the house as kind of an afterthought. Now the ki- and which was really challenging with the with the baby. Um, because you can't supervise the baby and cook or wash the dishes at the same time safely. So the kitchen now is getting moved into what was once the living room. It'll be all open. There's an oven. Hurrah! Three burners on the stove. Yes, three. Uh, The tile backsplash just went up yesterday, a great blue uh, tile. Maple flooring all in there to continue with our maple theme. And then a tatami area in that same room for the wife to do tea ceremony. She practices tea ceremony, and I—we both have an interest, especially her—to introduce this to more than just the the silver generation here in Japan. You know, it's important. You know, people have a sense that tea ceremony is all austere and super serious, but really the point is to enjoy tea and enjoy one another's company. So we're setting up an area for that to be a really multifunctional space. Plus, these two rooms together will allow us to have. you know, house concerts and, you know, tea parties and other events. It will be a great place for birthday parties. Most of the furniture we've got uh, secondhand or from uh, multi-night groups. So we've saved a ton of money on that, plus repurposing some of the other pictures, plus not buying things like a TV. Um, So the maple flooring, uh, last year we put in a new ofuro. I spent a lot of time in the bath. Um, so that's been already redone. We're getting new the bedroom tatami re-wrapped and new edges on it to just kind of freshen that up. Did some other things to make it the house more efficient about uh, double-paned windows, putting some insulation in. <laughs> uh, so really thinking about this house as long-term because this will be Ichiro's house if he wants it. Um, so how do we make this house... Um, that's really not an architectural jam. How do we make it interesting and comfortable, cozy, and have some personality? Well, by leaning into the fact that it's built in Showa, has these Taisho touches, renovated in, in Reiwa, um, whereas this big house here was built in Meiji and renovated in Heisei. So I like this feeling that we've really covered a lot of the uh, eras of Japan with our land here. In the Kura, um, right now, it's. All the powers kind of run on extension cords. There's one power line going out there, but it just was meant to be a storehouse. One little light. So I'm getting proper power in there and, you know, with a breaker box and then actually putting a, a heat pump, a heater cooler in there because I have so many books and archives and a lot of these books and well, my archives, I, you know, they're important to me, all these paintings. So just to remove some of the humidity and make it a little bit more comfortable in there um, for some of the times of the years, because this is n- now you know permanent studio space for me. The one thing about the Kura is, um, I thought about putting extending Wi-Fi into it, but I think I'm going to keep this as a no Wi-Fi uh, place. I shoot videos in there, so you can see inside of it. But as soon as I put Wi-Fi in there, then it becomes kind of a getting stuff done and checking in place, and this kind of my little crystal cave of solitude, uh, as it were. So. You know, maybe in a few months we can I can join you again and uh, show you some more of the uh, the construction outside, and also share a few more pictures and and uh, and whatnot from inside the the kuda. The project will probably be a uh, uh, maybe about another month. In the meantime, we're just living here with the parents. There's a big tatami room here that has seen a lot of history, including um, just after Ichiro was born last year, Grandma passed away, and so her. And this is, you know, of course, in the current situation, um, her body was here in the house for several days in the same room. So it's a really powerful place for this generational uh, change going on. And both grandma and grandpa's Oaxaca is close by. So we regularly go tell them about the progress of the house and what we're doing with their land. And we think about as we're working in the garden, you know, pulling up vegetables and whatnot we we think about their work that they put into these gardens and the privilege that i have and we all have to carry on their their story
0: wow wonderful well what a great talk about such a variety of of connectivity and communication amongst people and keeping your personal heritage and also keeping your family heritage now um, as you're settling into rural Okayama. It's so interesting, what a journey.
1: Yeah, well, you know, I should, I should say my, my Japan story started in the early 90s when I, I was, you know, I'd been falling around the Grateful Dead and hitchhiking around Europe, and I had a chance to come work as a, you know, as, on a working holiday visa in Totoriken, across the, across the other side of Japan from here, at a mushroom farm. And I thought, oh, this will be fun. Good adventure go to japan work a little bit get a motorcycle travel up you know travel everywhere it turned out this was like a six day all the time work 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 it wasn't a working holiday visa it was a work 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 indentured servant visa i ran away from that job like literally ran away and i had a friend here in okayama the goat farmer i mentioned at the time he was a young dairy farmer and i called him and said Could i come hang out at your place you know and regroup and you know, I ended up at his place, ended up hitchhiking around Japan, Shikoku up to Nagano, living up in the mountains in Nagano with some folks who were revitalizing Japanese country life. And this was just barely post bubble Japan, you know, still felt like bubble times. And they had dropped out of regular society and, and renovating um, these abandoned houses, what we call Akiya now. And, uh, and then I left to Guam on a visa run and never, and didn't come back for 20 some odd years. Japan was always there in my heart, in my story, but uh, I just didn't have a chance. And then I came back, I was in Indonesia, I had to go to the, to the States to deal with my late mother's estate. And I said, you know, I really wanna go visit uh, Farmer Mac at the goat farm and just regroup. My health was really bad. I was in a really tough emotional state. And I went to the goat farm in Okayama, same place I'd been 20 some odd years before. And one night there was a girl there drinking wine at the farm. And I rolled down there in my pink pajam, my pink monogram pajamas. I think that's probably what did it. And two years later, here I am. So it's funny how life works out. You know, years ago I, I took a left, a left turn from that farm. And 20 years later I came back and took a right turn and, and I'm better for it.
0: Uh, what a story. And a circular life journey that brought you right back to the same place. That's amazing. I yeah. love it.
1: Couldn't have predicted it.
0: (laughs) Well, thank you so much for joining the talk show series. And yeah, when you're further along in your renovation, uh, we'll dive into that topic a little bit more. But I love what you're doing with all the postcards, all the artwork and the poetry. I'm going to sign up as one of your members on Buy Me a Coffee. So I look forward to that in the mail. (laughs)
1: I, I, have a, I have a great time doing it. It's, it's a lot of joy and, and just thinking that, you know, I'm on your refrigerator is like, or in a shoebox or a scrapbook, like what greater honor is there? You know, the Louvre overrated. Put me on JJ Walsh's refrigerator.
0: <laughs> There's <laughs> lots of space. I look forward to having you there. <laughs> Th- thank you, everybody. Take care. Have a great day. Thank you. Thanks for joining today. What was your favorite part? Why don't you write a question or comment below and I'll reply or I'll get the guest to reply as well. Please think about sharing it, liking, subscribe, comment, join to support the series. I really appreciate your support and your enthusiasm for seeking sustainability wherever you live. And I really hope that this talk show series can give you new ideas, new insights, about innovation and different topics which are connected in some way to creating a better quality of life for people better quality of environment and getting enough income and still supporting the economy i always appreciate the comments and questions so if you have anything to say make sure you write it below i'd love to hear from you have a great day take care